Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Rutherford, Dento Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we will be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, we focus on inhalation and oral sedation, as well as an introduction to conscious sedation requirements, its use and possible complications. I'm joined today by Dr. Greg Marney, who is a practicing general dentist with an academic interest in pain control and local anaesthetic, having attained a doctorate, master's and a graduate diploma in these fields. He's held many academic and society positions in Australia and internationally, and presents on behalf of SEPTADENT. Greg provides continuing education for dentists across the world in IV inhalation and oral conscious sedation, local anaesthesia, and medical emergencies in the dental surgery. So Greg, welcome to Dental Protection, and thank you very much for your time and expertise today. One of the great things about my job is I get to talk to world-class experts on different subjects. So, Greg, thanks very much for sharing your expertise with our colleagues. Thank you very much, Michael, for giving me the opportunity to talk about, uh, I think we're talking about sedation. We are. So last podcast, we covered off on local anaesthesia. So now we are considering where next to go if either you or your patient considers that that is not enough. Of course, one option is to refer your patient to a practitioner with GA facilities, but there's scope within our own practice to do a little bit more. So perhaps first you could define what we mean by the different categories of sedation. Uh, thanks, uh, Michael. There's uh, a couple of different areas we, we, we talk about when we talk about sedation. It's at three levels. We have mild sedation, moderate sedation, and deep sedation. Okay, mild sedation essentially refers to um, a uh, oral sedation, where we give a, a patient a uh, particular drug, you know, an hour or so before the, their uh, dental appointment, or inhalation sedation, where we're giving somebody uh, nitrous oxide and oxygen mix. Moderate sedation refers to intravenous sedation, where we're giving people intravenous drugs to get the desired effects. And that's a specialist area of, of dentistry and in, in you have to have a, a qualification for that. And then you've got deep sedation, which is the step beyond that, which essentially means it's, you're doing a general anaesthetic and really should be performed by a um, anaesthetist. Mm-hmm. So that's really out of the scope of dentists in general. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. There's, I don't know, there's no dentist now in Australia that can actually do a general anaesthetic. Okay. Mm. Um, so how do you make the decision on what form of sedation or anxiolysis uh, you should do for a specific patient or for a specific treatment? Well, first of all, I think um, we have to look at their health, right? What comorbidity they're bringing to it. What's their level of anxiety that they have? Do they really need a, a, a really powerful uh, medication to bring them, you know, into that state where you can do it? Um, what your practice can do as well. I mean, not all of us can have a facility where we have IV sedation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and not all of us have um, nitrous oxide mm-hmm. on tap. 
So they're the things that we want to consider. One, the patient, and two, your facilities. Okay. So let's start with oral pre-med sedation, um, which I think is probably the most common adjunct therapy um, that general dentists use. Mm. Um, we do see a few complaints around this. Um, I guess we always see dentists don't ring this up to tell us things are going well. They ring us up to tell us things have gone wrong. So we do see some adverse outcomes uh, from these. Sometimes it's falls, a uh, patient collapsing or falling or bumping into things after the event or on the way. Uh, we have had one or two driving accidents um, and other things. So what's your general thoughts about oral anxiolysis and, and what would your okay. preferred drug or, or regime be? First of all, oral anxiolysis, uh, as defined by the um, APRA or the dental board, is a single enteral dose, no more that would be required for a patient in unmonitored home use. So if we are talking about benzodiazepines and the two most common ones are temazepam, and that's, uh, say, 10 milligrams of temazepam or um, diazepam or Valium, um, which is either five or 10 milligrams. Um, <clears throat> I personally find that temazepam is a really good sleeper. Right. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to go to sleep the night before because they're particularly anxious, temazepam works well. Mm -hmm. If somebody's really anxious, believe it or not, the old drug diazepam works better. Okay. Mm. So but do you... there are drawbacks on it. Right. And, and what are they? Well, um, temazepam has a um, half-life of about four hours. Mm -hmm. So it really is, if you're doing it the night before, it's no longer in their system. Right. by the time they see you mm -hmm. because it's more than four half-life since, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, but diazepam mm -hmm. has a half-life of 24 to 40 hours and is very right. much dependent on the patient's comorbidity and age. So the older they are, the longer it's going to last for. Okay. We'll get into that in a minute. So um, just say you've got a patient coming in at 11 o'clock, they're going to have uh, what they consider a particularly nasty surgical extraction, and I don't think there's any nice surgical extractions, but um, you'd be looking at a pre-medication the night before to help them a good night's sleep? Uh, if they want to, okay. right? Now, I mean, to actually preempt that somebody's going to need that is probably um, a bridge too far. Okay. I, I, would, I would ask them, I mean, are you particularly nervous about this, do you need to help to go to sleep the night before? Mm -hmm. um, one of the problems with um, giving scripts for diazepine is that they usually come in packs of 20 or 24 yes. and all of a, or 25, and all of a sudden you only want them to take one of those doses yes. and then yes. they make the decision, well, maybe, maybe I'm really nervous, maybe I need two, mm -hmm. right? And that is a problem sometimes, yeah. yeah. I mean, that brings in the problem, too, of ex experience with the drug, isn't it? That, yeah. you know, we, we're all aware of patients who'll have 10 milligrams and drive the kids to school. Mm. Um, we may not agree with it, but but it's out there. Yeah. Uh, whereas if we're giving an, a novice benzodiazepam user yeah. um, 10 milligrams, they're possibly not going to, you know, not be able to eat breakfast uh, competently. Well, like all drugs, there's a... a a bell curve of reactions mm -hmm. to that. So some are more sensitive than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would you look at um, a pre-med, say an hour or two before the procedure, 
in as well as the night before or instead of the night before? What's Is it horses for courses or what's your preference? Well, um, I personally don't do the night before, mm-hmm. okay, um, mainly because, I mean, what uh, unless they really, really want need it, right? Yeah. Um, um, but one hour beforehand, um, topic, you know, with a uh, something like diazepam. And, uh, but the problem is once you've written out a script for diazepam or something like that, you are responsible for that patient, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you've got to have the appropriate instructions for that patient. And that includes they're not allowed to drive. They must be escorted. Mm-hmm. Um, to and from. If it's no escort, it ain't done. Right. It, yeah. And they don't go home in a taxi. They actually go home in a private vehicle mm-hmm. or, and they certainly don't go home in, in uh, public transport. Okay. So this is with oral anxiolysis. Oral so anxiolysis, yeah. So you'd have a, um, like a sheet. Uh, a standard a, form. Standard form. Yeah. Do not drive. Do yep. not write your will or operate yep. machinery. Yeah. Yeah. All that. Okay, that's, I mean, we used to do IV sedation in our practice, and I guess you would have come across this all the time. The number of times patients would front up and say, look, I couldn't find anyone, or, yeah, I brought my car, um, I'll be fine. Now, we, we blanket refuse to do anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If they turn up like that, and I said, well, it's in the instructions, and you were told if it, you don't have that, um, driver, mm-hmm. it won't mm-hmm. be done. I'm sorry, we can't yeah. do that. And um, the issue now is that you've got a patient with drugs on board, mm-hmm. yes. right? And they've got to get home somehow, yes. even though you've ref- you know you, they're not done any work, and but you refused them. Yes. So yes. so how do you get them home? Yeah, it, it, it's a dilemma, and and I think we've got to get across that problem that perhaps the patient has created the issue by not following our instructions, but it's still our responsibility. Correct. We can't say, you know, Mr. Smith, you didn't do what I said, off you go. Mm. We've prescribed it, we've told them to take it, and we've still got that responsibility. Yeah, and the problem is post-operatively as well. I mean, you may get somebody driving them home, right, and they turn up to home and they get out to unlock the, the front door, the patient decides, I'm okay, I'm going to get out of the car, mm-hmm. trip over a step and bang their head. Yeah, yeah. You know, that hap- I've seen that happen a couple of times, actually. It's one of the questions we used to ask is how many steps mm. to get into your house? And you find out if they live at Red Hill or the Grange, the answer is about 30. And, you know, the significance of falling over from 30 steps versus two uh, is potentially far worse. So, okay, so that's that's interesting. So. If for all pre-medication, we do have that responsibility of a set escorted home. Yes. And I guess chaperoning or observation and until the effects have worn off. That's right. And in the case of um, diazepam, that's mm-hmm. 24 hours at least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the rest of the day and that night. So I guess that means it's incumbent on us to have a very thorough conversation with our patient beforehand and spell it out and understand our own responsibilities in this in this field. Yeah, the, yeah, the issue is um, uh, one of 
making sure the patient is fully informed of what their requirements or what their obligations are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have certain obligations and they do too. Okay. We probably see or hear of more concerns around oral anxiolysis than any other form of sedation. Um, certainly we don't hear much about uh, um, uh, nitrous oxide, uh, and we'll get onto that, but mm. this seems to be a little bit of a mystery area for, for a lot of dentists and a lot of patients. So yeah. I'm glad you cleared that up. Yeah, the other issue is that is, uh, um, there was for a while there a particular groups that were keen on titrating the dose of oral uh, sedation. Mm-hmm. So they'd give a patient an hour beforehand something like temazepam or lorazepam Mm-hmm. Right, and and look for the effects of that twenty minutes later, which was the normal distribution half life of that particular drug, mm-hmm. and then they sort of say, "Well, they're not quite sedated enough for me," mm-hmm. and they give them another dose. Yeah, and of course, oral dose, and of course, the problem is you don't know what their absorption rate is. That could all of a sudden always catch up with them, mm-hmm. and it did happen a couple of times when people were doing that that end up putting people in hospital. Yeah. I guess that's the problem with oral sedation. You can't get it back. No. Uh, once it's in there. You... And that's why it's a single enteral drug. Okay. Yeah. Great. It specifically says one and one yeah, only. Sorry, I missed that emphasis that you made yeah, right from the start. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and for everyone out there, Greg's holding his finger up with a, with a number one. <laughs> um, you only give one dose. So what about assessing our patients? I mean, looking at age, say body weight, polypharma, medical conditions? Well, um, let's have a look at that. When we're assessing anybody for sedation, mm-hmm. we, we want to make sure that that patient is not carrying a lot of comorbidity with them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and certainly age is one of those issues that their patients tend to be more sensitive to benzos um, in that sort of situation. Um, uh, kids as well. That's mm-hmm. another issue. Their body weight is such. So you'd be doing, say, five milligrams of temazepam. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a great fan of giving children benzos. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just think that it's just because you can quite often with children get a paradoxical reaction mm-hmm. to, yes, to, yes. to the drugs. Yes. Um, and so you don't, all of a sudden you've got this child that's um, you know doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things in front of you and the mother looking at you Saying you did this, you did this, yes. <laughs> and I mean, there's all those anecdotal stories stories about um, parents giving valergan or phenergan before oh. putting a kid on a flight, and then the kid running up and down the corridors, yeah, you know, uh, for three hours until they get there. So. Yeah, yeah. And the parents looking for the place in the lavatory to hide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've covered off on age. Um, what about body weight? Yeah, I, I look. You know, giving that single dose, mm-hmm. um, you probably don't have to worry too much about it as long as they're of normal normal weight. I, I guess what I'm, I'm I'm angling towards is that perhaps that patient you've seen over many years, but now they're turned seventy and they've lost a lot of the the muscle bulk, um, and probably fine down a lot more, maybe you know, fifty sixty kilos. Um, when, when do you bail out or when do you decide oh, this isn't a good idea? I think if anybody over 70, I'm bailing out. Okay. Uh, literally bailing out. Right, right. right. Because um, whilst um, we talk about geriatrics, geriatrics we normally define as somebody over the age of 65. How old are you, Greg? Yeah. yeah. yeah well, now, I'm, 
I actually recently had to do a presentation on geriatrics in Paris, and and, and, I, and I said, "Why'd you pick on me?" Anyway, we won't won't go any further on that. Um, yeah. It's a secret. Yeah. Um, anyway, so geriatrics um, quite often, yeah, we talk about sixty five, but in reality, they don't need any geriatric services, mm-hmm. right? And it and it, it may not be till they're seventy five they need it. Mm-hmm. But the issue we've got to remember is no matter how you know, how fit and well they are, mm-hmm. they cannot get away with the fact that there is an aging process. Yes. So in that aging process, the hepatic blood flow decreases, their, their renal blood flow decreases, they get start getting thickening of, of um, arteries, mm-hmm. they get, um, the valves don't work quite as well. So all those reasons, I just don't do people over 70. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a bit of a hard sell at times, I think, because... Mm. You, know, you and I are both around that, you know, yeah. heading towards 70 or thereabouts. Yeah. And, like, we can't run 100 metres the way we used to, but otherwise we probably feel reasonably fit and healthy. And we'd question why somebody's going to treat us differently just because we've had another birthday. Well, the, the, but there's the other side of the coin as well, mm-hmm. and I understand that, but it also is that it's the patient that walks in and doesn't know they're unwell. That's mm-hmm. a real mm-hmm. issue there, right? And I can I can use myself for, as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I didn't feel well one day and I went to the hospital and they sort of said, oh, you know, everything looks good, no troponin, all this sort of stuff. And the next thing is that, but you know what, Greg, you've got some risk factors, Mm-hmm. One and one of them was age. One of them was genetics, and I was carrying a bit more weight than I am now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So why don't you get a stress echo the next day? So mm-hmm. I did. Uh, the next thing I'm know, they got my chest open and replumbing my heart. Uh, I was 100 percent blocked in two oh, places yeah. on my widow maker and 80 percent on the other two. And you didn't know. And I did not know. Yeah. I had no chest pains, no shortness of breath, nothing. Which means your dentist wouldn't have known either. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's an issue, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, one thing I have noticed with, um, I suppose I've got an aging practice as well. Mm-hmm. I'm getting more and more of these people walking through my door. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can I just say nitrous oxide comes into its own on those people. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we'll move on to that. But I guess so. You're a better man for having been opened up. Or? Oh, mate, I'm fighting fit. There you go. <laughs> Back to the 100 metres. Um, so what about polypharma? Okay. Where does that come into it? Is that an indication of the relative health of the patient or are you looking more at the specific drug? Um, generally speaking, um, one or two things. One is an indication of the general health of the patient. So the more drugs they're taking, the more likely to have you know systems that are not functioning properly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's more about that than, mm-hmm. than anything mm-hmm. else. It's an indication. And I think well, when we are assessing people for sedation, mm-hmm. we look at how many drugs are they taking. Yeah. So if they're taking a, a high blood pressure and they're diabetic and something else, all of a sudden they've moved out of that comfort zone yeah. and they're a yeah. higher risk, anaesthetic risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and I guess that's it. Our, our anaesthetic colleagues certainly look at this and have their ratings of ASA 1, isn't it, and yeah, 2, yeah, and yeah. You know, what, what, what risk are you prepared to take for the procedure? And the guidelines state that we should do just ASA 1s and 2s. Okay, so that's for oral uh, sedation? That's for inhalation sedation as well, Ooh, which yeah, is yeah. really interesting because I, I probably disagree with it. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's certainly um, a lot of ASA three patients can be done under nitrous oxide because it doesn't affect all those other systems, mm-hmm. doesn't affect the, the cardiovascular system, doesn't affect the um, uh, respiratory respiration, it doesn't affect kidneys, doesn't affect hepatic function for all those reasons. Okay, so I guess that might be a good time to segue into oral. Um... Mm. Uh, sorry, in- inhalation sedation. Just one thing before that, I'd just yeah. like to iterate, um, and while we move into uh, inhalation sedation, you can't do pre-med mm-hmm. and oral sedation, right. right? Because once you've done that, you've moved from mild sedation to moderate sedation. Okay. So that has to be a fully monitored patient by a person that has at least the grad dip. There you go. So you've given 10 milligrams of diazepam pre-med and the patient's still fidgety. Yeah. You and don't use, you don't you, use you nitrous. No, because essentially what happens is that, say benzos in particular, mm-hmm. they actually act on the GABA-A receptor sites, mm-hmm. which is the same receptor site that nitrous oxide Okay. Uh, one of the it, it works nitrous oxide. We can talk about how it works later, mm-hmm. but it does lie on that also the GABA strep, receptor site. Therefore, you get this uh, potentiation of that particular um, um, drug. Great. Okay. And yep. the other thing that happens is, of course, it's the same receptor site that alcohol okay. attaches to. There you go. Yeah. So that patient who gets that, um, uh, shall we say? Um, Dutch, Dutch courage beforehand. They mm-hmm. did their yep. own pre-med, yep. right, yep. with nitrous oxide are a problem. Okay. Mm. And, and what about experience? I mean, if you're a seasoned drinker, does that mean that the benzodiazepams and the nitrous oxide are not going to be as effective? Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I had a fellow in the other day and, you know, he boasted basically mm. that he has 15 schooners a day. Which is a fair mm, win, okay. and he drove down from Bundaberg for it oh, <laughs> for his treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And anyway, um, seventy percent nitrous oxide, eight liters a minute. He was uh, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. affected. Mm-hmm. You know, where you or I probably would, that would be an anaesthetic dose. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So nitrous oxide. Um, most of us would have had experience and training in this at dental school, um, and there's certainly courses out there conducted by the ADA and several other uh, sources, including ATSA. Um, We need some training in this, but um, it's a pretty good means of anxiolysis. So your thoughts? I I, I absolutely agree with you there. um, The good thing about it is that it it acts really, really quickly. You can, uh, because it acts really quickly, it's not lipid soluble and Mm -hmm. it's not soluble in blood. Therefore, it actually acts quickly, you can titrate the dose to effect, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And it also means because it's not soluble in, in blood and, and fat, it comes out of your system really quickly. So you can blow it all off in three minutes of oxygen. And yes. So the patient can walk out the door. So right. I, I actually like it because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, even some of my um, die-on-the-wall IV sedation patients now are just, just being maintained on... Um, uh, nitrous oxide because they've gotten to that age. Yes, yes. And, and speaking of age, once again, that same question about the elderly, the uh, children. 
Um, does that increase risk or, or effectiveness? Not really, because it doesn't affect the systems. Okay, right. It doesn't. It, it it's so lipid soluble. You know, answer insoluble that it mm -hmm. just comes out of the system so quickly. Right. And if you ever run into trouble, you turn on the oxygen. Yes. And and they recover very, yeah, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. But on age thing, you will find that the older you get, the less you need. Okay. Right? So I've actually son, done 80-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember we did it in uh, Melbourne one time and there was an 80-year-old dentist doing the course, believe it or not. Yeah. And um, – he was as happy as chap chappy in the world at five percent nitrous oxide, right, okay. and at ten percent he was he was getting up very uncomfortable. Okay, right? but children are the opposite. Mm -hmm. Quite often, children will take a lot more. Okay, right. So it's not uncommon for children to be up in the forty to fifty percent mark before they really start being um, fully sedated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the experience, right? right? And I think it's because the kids, um, you know, are very susceptible to the hypnotic effects of nitrous mm -hmm. oxide. Yes. So you can actually um, talk to them about, oh, you know, you're a deep sea diver and going down, or you're you're a fighter pilot, or you're going. Some of them have got scented masks, and you know, you you're going through a field of strawberries or whatever. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, they're very very uh, receptive to those sort of suggestions. Yep. And of course, you're talking in that monotone, uh, constant voice. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and you're saying things. And it's quite often when I'm doing it, I'm saying people are. Just remember to breathe in and out, Yeah. in and out. Now, that is giving them the rate of breathing that you yes, want, yes. which is really important because, yeah, you know, um, I don't know whether you've experienced it, but when you're giving a local anaesthetic, and especially a block, mm. what do patients do? They hold their breath. Hold their breath. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. See how long that So lasts. while I'm doing it, I'm saying, I just want you to concentrate breathing in and out, yeah. in and out, and all of a sudden that gives them, it's almost distraction therapy as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, using an adjunct therapy. Yeah, and I agree with that idea of it's almost that hypnosis, isn't it? Yeah, particularly with children, just giving that monotone. Yeah, yeah and you and you get them. Sort of you can lift their you lift them up, their wrist up, and it yeah. just flops, it flops down. They become Mister Floppy. Mm. Yeah, mm. mind you, some kids will do that without nitrous. Okay. Yeah, you know, just get affected. This white coat syndrome in another way. Mm -hmm. Um, and and. What do you believe we need uh, um, if we're using nitrous? So we've got the standard EpiPen. Um, obviously, you've got oxygen because you've got it there. You've got the airway. Would you have anything else on hand? No, not really. The only thing I'd probably have is that you get that person that's got a poor airway, mm -hmm. um, you know, got a history of sleep apnea or something like that. I normally won't lie them as flat anyway, but... Um, I worry a little bit about them because, you know, you start working on the lower jaw. What do they do? The jaw goes down yeah, yes. and they occlude their airway. So yes. uh, in so people with, you know, the big bull necks and, and um, you know, poor airways, mm -hmm. I usually use a pulse oximeter on them. Okay. And that pulse oximeter, they're cheap as chips. I'd see them for they 30, are, they are. $39. You know, my first pulse oximeter cost me over $1,000. Yes, I know. I've been there too. But um, <laughs> I saw they were almost giving them away during the COVID times. Yeah. Um, yeah, check your own. Yeah. But, I mean, if you do use a pulse oximeter, make sure you know how to use it and mm -hmm. what it really actually represents as well. Yeah. I think that's important, you know. Mm -hmm. It tends to be the trend more yes. than anything else. Yes, because it's a delay, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Mm. And would you use a pillow under the shoulders for those, you know, for the airway? Or, well, I, not a pillow, but say a towel or? Oh, 
No, I don't. I don't tend to do. Some people do, and they find that useful. But mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I don't tend to do that. Okay. I, I don't have problems with it. Yeah. Mm. And what about driving home? You've, you've put your patient on three minutes of oxygen. They've told you they're perfectly okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a little bit of a, um, a judgment call on that. Okay. So technically speaking, the nitrous oxide is actually purged out of your system within that three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in actual fact, there are some machines out there that you hit the there's a recovery button on it mm-hmm. and you hit that and just gives 100% oxygen for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always sort of like sit the patient up and I check their demeanor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So some people do get that. You post euphoric sense, you know, mm-hmm. that post-operative yes. euphoric sense. Yes. And I look at them and I said, oh, you know, and I ask the first question before they even stand up. I sort of say, oh, how do you feel? You know, do you feel perfectly normal? Oh, no, you know, oh, I feel a little bit dizzy. Well, they stay there for longer. Yeah. Um, and then I actually physically walk them to the reception area and mm-hmm. I check their demeanor there. And the question I ask them, are you comfortable driving home? Mm-hmm. If, they, if they are driving home. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, I get somebody who will say, you know what? I might sit down in the waiting room for a little yeah. bit longer. Yeah. And usually two minutes later, they get up and I say, I'm fine now. Okay. So, but that's good. You've prompted them yeah. to consider it. And also you've prompted them to say, you know, to, to, admit or say, no, I'm not. Yeah. You know, you haven't given this expectation. It's all over. Off you go. Yeah, We're exactly. still concerned about you. We still want to check that you're okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Um, adverse outcomes. Well, um, the adverse outcomes tend to be things like um, if you overdose somebody, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you're carefully titrating the dose, that's less likely, Yeah. right? But um, the adverse outcomes could be, you know, if somebody – well, the worst one is probably if they get a little bit hysterical under that nitrous oxide, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you've got this, this hysterical person. It can happen. They start laughing uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. It can happen. Um, it fails. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, so these are the adverse outcomes. But generally speaking, they're not medical, by and large, not mm-hmm. medical problems. They're just treatment problems. Yeah. And, and for... This inhalation sedation, um, do you recommend any special training for dental assistants? Um, for inhalation sedation, I don't think they do need mm-hmm. any special training. Usually the more experienced patient, uh, dental assistants are, are really um, um, are quite competent in, in mm-hmm. dealing with that that patient that's not, yeah. because their airways are still patent. Yeah. Their, their reflexes, their gag reflexes are still there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah. we're certainly including the DAs in our CPR training, which we're having regularly anyway. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So still on inhalation sedation, what's, what's your feelings about Penthrox or the, or the green whistle? Well, I'm, I'm not a fan mm-hmm. of, of the green whistle, to be honest, because it's methoxyfluorothane, mm-hmm. which is, um, well, it's nephrotoxic um, and hasn't been used in uh, theatres, uh, you know, operating theatres since about 1975. Right, okay. Okay, so it's, it's actually banned in a lot of countries, mm-hmm. for example, USA. Mm-hmm. And I actually contacted the FDA on that, and I said, "Why'd you ban it?" And they basically said, "Because it's unsafe because of the right. nephrotoxicity." Yeah. Um, look, green whistles is are really good for somebody who's broken their leg out in the field on the football field or somewhere mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. 
and um, they need pain relief. You're out in an open field. Um, you're not contaminating the immediate area around 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 you, mm-hmm. and so the operator's desperately not getting a, a whiff. Because one of the issues about it is that you breathe in and out through that whistle, right. and when you breathe out, it goes through a carbon filter, and, and that absorbs the methoxy. But the issue is that once somebody becomes sedated under nitrous uh, under penthrox, mm-hmm. their hand comes down. Okay. And it comes away from their, you know, the nitrous, the um, rather the penthrox comes away. Right. And therefore they start blowing out penthrox into your immediate environment. So then so, you've got a sedated dentist working on a sedated You've got a sedated patient. dentist. And, and um, I mean, to that end, um, you know, in ambulances now, mm-hmm. you can only do it uh, once in a shift and all that sort of stuff. Because okay. Of, yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you're working in a practice that uses this routinely. Yeah. Or... Yeah, you're probably, you can smell it. It's like a tutti frutti smell. Mm -hmm. And um, if you can smell it, it's probably more than two parts per million, which is considered by the FDA to be dangerous. Okay. I think the manufacturers in Australia uh, have a slightly higher dose than that, but yeah. yeah. Because that was my understanding. It was always for that acute pain. It's great. Not for chronic pain or anxiolysis. Yeah. It's almost a misuse of it. Um, well, it's using some of the unique properties of it. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't doubt that it works. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm just personally, I'm not particularly happy about the safety of it mm-hmm. and how it's done. And people must have oxygen on 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 hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be surprised the number of dental dental surgeries that don't have oxygen. Yes. Portable yes. oxygen. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, look, thanks very much. I think we've covered off on those. And um, um, uh, we might move on to IV sedation. Now, it's outside the scope of this discussion to be you know, talking about what you do with administering an IV sedation because that requires an endorsement and specialist training by dentists. But if you were, say, a, a dentist who was thinking of... Um, Getting an IV sedationist in, whether they be a medico or a or a, a, an endorsed dentist, and treating patients under IV sedation, can you cast your mind to what sort of considerations people should make before they? I think under, I think the first that? first thing would be they've got to understand what is IV sedation. Um, so. Um, if they think that IV sedation is a general anaesthetic, they're sadly mistaken, mm-hmm. right? So that it, it's sometimes called conscious sedation, IV mm-hmm. sedation. So the patient will actually respond, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, purposely to your command. So if you say to them, open their mouth, they get around to open their mouth, mm-hmm. right? If you hurt them, they may even say, ah, you know, this yeah. is this is not pleasant, Um the, the drugs you use, of course, mean that they don't remember a damn thing afterwards, but mm. uh, during it, it can be a bit disconcerting for the dentist if they don't understand that, yeah. right, that, that patients aren't, it's not a general anaesthetic. That, that's a good point because I think it's one of the criteria in the PSO-9 that, you know, it's one of the criteria that describes conscious sedation, that patients must be able to respond to verbal commands. Yep. And, and colleagues, uh, PSO-9 is a document put out by the Australian New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, which um, describes the different levels of, of, of sedation. 
it's now been superseded by the PG09. Oh, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> but, but it still says that, mm-hmm. right? yeah. um, essentially. Um, the reason why they brought it in is because it's not only dentists that do uh, conscious sedation or IV sedation. We have cardiologists, radiologists, mm-hmm. um, cosmetic people that all do it, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, they're a bit concerned that they want to make sure that they, you, you can have a a dialogue that embraces all those specialties. And, of yeah. course, what happens is it all gets watered down. Mm-hmm. But, but um, I think um, if I was somebody that was looking to get a, a sedation in, I would certainly want to understand what conscious sedation is. Okay. I want to understand using um, packs, throat mm-hmm. packs, that, mm-hmm. you know, because they do have a reduced gag reflex mm-hmm. and you don't want things going down their throat and landing on the vocal cords and then you've got l- laryngeal spasms. Um, you um, want to know the limitations of what you can do mm-hmm. under that um, and you want to know what f- facility you need and what protocols you need. Mm-hmm. So you need a surgery that can do IV sedation yeah. and that means that um, in that case it's got to fit five people into it. Right, right. And that is the patient, the DA, the dentist, you know, the operator, mm-hmm. the sedationist, and usually a scrub nurse as well because mm-hmm. quite often mm-hmm. you, why the, part of the reason why you're doing the IV sedation is because you're doing complex work. Yes, that yes. Not only are the patients anxious, but they're doing complex work, whether it be mm-hmm. implants or surgical extractions of, of uh, teeth or multi, even multiple fillings when mm-hmm. you're doing four or five fillings. Um, as far as protocols concerned, it's really important to have those protocols in place. In other words, emergency protocols, um, yeah, the facility that's big enough to um, handle um, the uh, emergencies that are there, mm-hmm. right? Um, that you've got access for the uh, emergency services. I mean, it's one of the issues that we've had in the past is that you know somebody's doing IV sedation on the forty-first floor or the some tower somewhere yeah, in the middle of a yeah, CBD, yeah. and then you know trying to get the EMS people up to that tower, that mm-hmm. up to that thirty-first can quite often be. Time-consuming. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and I guess you've got to look at recovery rooms too, don't uh, you? Then? Yeah, true. Yeah, so, Where, where's that patient going to be recovered? Yeah, and, 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 and who's going to do the monitoring? Yeah, and how long are you going to leave them there for? So mm-hmm. it's not. So if you said, "Oh, well, I don't need a recovery because I'm only doing one sedation," mm. which is not normally cost-effective. Yes, but um, even if you you know leaving that patient, that that surgeries. Mm-hmm. In use for an hour, right? Yeah. Postoperatively, quite often it's you know if you've got a uh, you know you're doing an hour sedation, you at least got an hour postoperatively. Okay. Mm. So, have you got any thoughts about how a dentist who is thinking of venturing into this field, how they should get experience or that understanding? There actually isn't an, any course for the training. Mm-hmm. You know, the Australian Society of Dental Anesthesiology is actually thinking about uh, doing a course. Okay. The problem with the in the past, when they've run those courses, it's been poorly attended. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, the people have been tended to be Ryan themselves. But I think they're, they're because there's now a greater uptake of IV sedation out there mm-hmm. that they're thinking about actually okay. uh, running a course. You know, yeah. uh, what would be helpful is what, and we alluded to this when we were doing the local anaesthetic uh, lecture is. Practicing if something happens. Yes, yes. In other words, uh, you know, make sure that everybody knows their role 
mm-hmm. in that particular thing and uh, uh, scenario. And always, always before I start doing an IV sedation course, mm-hmm. I always say, if it hits the fan, this is your job. This is yes. your job. Yes. Marie, get onto the, the EMS. This is your um, speech that you give them. You tell mm-hmm. them where you are and what's happened, who's done it and all that sort of stuff so that you can actually emphasize to the EMS people what's going on. Mm-hmm. I've actually struck some sometimes um, ringing up emergency services that um, they, they quite often dismiss dentists, mm-hmm. okay. which, which is really quite surprising. You know, um, I think I had one patient one time was having angina mm-hmm. and I sort of said, oh, well, you know, do you want me to give them, you know, 25 mics of fentanyl or something like that or even nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is really good for, pain, you know, uh, yes, angina yes. pain. And uh, yeah, they were absolutely horrified. Oh, no, you can't do that. Yeah, and, I said, yeah. and I guess they don't know your qualifications or, no, or experience. No. Well, they've got a set format and protocol in front of them. They're reading mm-hmm. off a screen. So yeah. that's what, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I used to treat patients under IV sedation, but always with a separate dental practitioner providing the sedation. And mm. you know, Mark used to have to go along to the ADSA courses to to update his you know, refresher. And I used to attend with him, even though I never gave the sedations. Um, and another thing we did, though, was when we had St. John's or Red Cross out to give the CPR training, we said, look, sometimes this patient is going to be sedated. Can you keep that in account in, you know, when, you, you, when you're training us? And do you think that's relevant? I think that's entirely relevant. It's really good. Yeah. Um, one of the things we do have to have when we do IV sedation, we actually have to have a defibrillator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so when you do your CPR training, it's really important that you practice defibrillation. With, yes, yes. Okay, and there's plenty of cheap trainers, defibrillator trainers out there that you yeah. can actually practice that. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do now? And you mm-hmm. run around like a headless chalk. No, yeah. you know what you've got to do. Yeah. We had a defibrillator and we put it under the clock in the tea room. Yeah. So if you checked that the lunch hour was over, you saw the defibrillator. It was just a, a nice little reminder to everyone in the building exactly where this thing lived. Yeah. So if somebody's going to have a sedation, it, it's obviously a sedationist call on whether they're medically fit for the procedure, but it also is helpful if the treating dentist, the, the, the dental surgeon, could make some sort of call on initially whether this patient should be considered or not. You got any guidelines on that? Well, I think... Um... Yeah, it's really important, especially with the travelling sedationist, because quite mm-hmm. often the first time that travelling sedationist sees that patient is, is, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before they actually sedate that patient. Mm-hmm. So they're going through the medical questionnaire trying to determine whether this person is, is appropriate. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things is that obviously if they've got significant comorbidity, then mm-hmm. they're not likely to be good sedation patients. Yeah. If their anatomy is such that they've got poor airways, they're not going to be good sedation patients. Mm-hmm. If they're over 70, they're not going to be good sedation patients. Yeah. If they're under, say, 13 or 14, they're probably not going to be good sedation patients. Right. Okay. So there's these, there's these things that we, we look at. Mm. Um, and I think the more you do, the more you get used yeah. to it. I mean, a lot of them, and, and I think it makes a lot of sense, if the sedationist has a medical history and questionnaire that they leave with the practitioner, they can get the patient to fill it out at the consult appointment, fax or email it through so the 
sedation as they've got a good idea of what they're dealing with before they actually Abs- emancipate. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, look, we're probably going to wrap this up pretty soon, but um, a, a question that comes up in our line uh, every now and then, who's responsible for the airway? So you've got a patient under sedation, you've got a sedationist, you've got the dentist performing the surgery. Who looks after that airway? The dentist. Okay. Okay. Um, if it hits the fan, mm-hmm. it'll always be the sedationist because, right. yeah. Um, the reason why I say it's the dentist is because it's the dentist most likely to drop something down the airway. Okay. Right. And, and I mean, so it's incumbent upon them to make sure that nothing goes down that airway and the DA, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Having said that, it also means that the sedationist that's monitoring that patient should be constant of that what that dentist is doing mm-hmm. in that they've got the appropriate packs in place. Okay. So I think it's in, in a lot of respects, it's a shared responsibility. Okay. Uh, and, and what about the general well-being of the patient? Who makes Who makes that call? It might sound a bit silly like... Obviously, both of you. But um, if 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 I'm doing the surgery mm. and the patient is restless and I don't feel I can continue safely, and I say to the sedationist, "Can you give them a bit more?" and they say no, you know, that's I guess that's a sedationist call. Yes, okay. yeah, it will be the sedationist call. If the sedationist says, "No, I'm not, I'm not comfortable giving this person any more," mm-hmm. um, then I think you, you know, you've got to. Send, that's the time when you start thinking, hang on, maybe we need to bail on this patient. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it doesn't happen very often, mm-hmm. um, especially with the drugs and techniques we're using now. Okay. And what about if the saturated oxygen's dropping or the blood pressure's going up? That's that's a sedationist is you know, down tools. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They'll just say stop. And and there is a thing called greater deservedness, you know. So if there's something like that's happening, it's usually not happening like that. It's usually happening over a period of time. And the um, uh, sedationist might sort of say, um, I'm not particularly happy with what's going on here. He's starting to desat or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, I think we need to stop. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and then the dentist sort of turns around and said, yeah, but I only just got this little bit to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, just need to. And then, then the sort of against that greater assertiveness comes in when the, when the sedationist will start saying, no, listen to me, you need to stop. Right. <laughs> and, and, and look, I can just say, uh, colleagues, that um, these things become critical when something goes wrong. Um, you might be sitting there with the implant half, half inserted saying, no, I'm almost there. Um, but if things go wrong, um, your reluctance to cease work in the face of the sedationist or the anaesthetist saying, stop now. Uh, might come back to haunt you. Well, you know, uh, the, the classic case is when you're doing um, implants mm-hmm. and, you know, you've got that little screwdriver there mm-hmm. and you go to put it in and all of a sudden the patient starts coughing, convulsing and doing things like this and the next thing you know, oh, where's that screwdriver gone? Yeah, well, that was on 60 Minutes about um, oh, was it? five years ago. Yes, yes. A uh, dentist who lost one and told the patient he'd coughed at the wrong time. So but we won't go into that. <laughs> so, um, look, have you got any closing comments, Greg, or anything? No, I think um, I think with um, sedation and, you know, local anaesthetics, it's really important upon us that we give our patients 
a variety of modalities in which they can get their treatment done to mm -hmm. deal with their particular and unique position, whether it's because of anxiety, because you're getting a complex treatment. Uh, and if you're offering these alternatives, mm -hmm. uh, therefore you're actually looking after your patients better. Yeah, and I think that's an important word, isn't it? That unique circumstances. You've got to personalise this. It's not a one-size-fits-all, everyone gets a, a nitrous or everyone gets pre-med. It's that individualising the treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Greg, look, again, this has been a fantastic chat. Um, and again, I've learned things and enjoyed the chat. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Um, so thank you for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you for listening, uh, colleagues. We hope that this podcast was helpful to you and look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review. 